The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. A thousand years ago, a young woman living in the courts of Imperial Japan began writing about an idealized prince named Genji. Her name, as it has come to be known, was Murasaki Shikabu, or Lady Murasaki. And the book she wrote, The Tale of Genji, is argued by many to be the world's first novel. Who was Lady Murasaki, and what compelled her to write this story? What kind of society did she live in, and what kind of world did her novel portray? And finally, what kind of influence did the tale of Genji have, and what, if anything, can we take from her work today? We're discussing the Japanese masterpiece, The Tale of Genji, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Genji, what a treat. This is, well, there are times when you jump into a world because that's the world you want to spend time in. For me, that's the world of Graham Greene, John le Carré, the European world, spies and intrigue, the Cold War. And then there are worlds that pull you in, like the world of Marcel Proust, where you wind up there almost in spite of yourself. John Cheever has a line about this in his letters that I've never forgotten. He was writing to someone about Nabokov, and he said he admired Nabokov, but the sensibility was different. Nabokov was a Russian aristocrat, polished in Paris. And Cheever said, I grew up in a house where my father hung his underwear on a nail on the bathroom door. It's a great line, and it gives us a window into Cheever and how Cheever viewed himself. He can't be too literary, too imaginative, too into the, the gamesmanship of literature and language. He's rooted. He's matter-of-fact. Okay? So, I'm basically this Wisconsin boy, farms and factories, a Midwesterner, transplanted to various places around the world. But that's me. That's me at my, at my core. And Proust's Parisian characters, the high society with their fancy parties and their achingly refined manners and the social gradations, people climbing, dropping. That's not my world. And you would think, and I thought, that I wouldn't be pulled in. I would resist. My body, my sensibility, my background would resist this because I have a natural antipathy toward the rich and the refined and the pseudo-problems of the wealthy, right? I don't quite have underwear nailed to the door. I can't say that I had that in my house, but my grandfather did devise a shower in the basement of his house. That was a, a black rubber hose with a jagged edge because he had just cut the hose, the end off with a knife. Okay? Underwear on a nail. <laughs> well, that was probably there too. Probably just took it down when company came over. And yet, for all that practicality, I was immersed in Proust. I binge read it. Tale of Genji is like that. I haven't read it all, but it pulls me in, and for a lot of the same reasons that Proust does. It's a great story, a lot of compelling stories within the, the overall narrative. When you start to learn the rules of the world, you start to see how people act 
within that world. And you start to see how pushing against that world becomes crucial to the characters. When an author like Proust or like today's subject, Murasaki, is honest, if they have a goal of breathing a a real world into life, and to breathe into life realistic characters, even if they're enhanced or idealized, then watching those characters, for me, makes the reading worthwhile. Now, I say that Lady Murasaki was honest. That's the key. Because what I don't want is someone with a different agenda. I don't want an author who says, here's how you all must behave, who writes a book in order to set forth rules and guidelines whose goal is to instruct, who thinks the world is going to hell, and his or her job is to teach people to act differently, according to some particular manner. You see the difference? I don't want a novel that describes a ceremony because the author thinks the ceremony is more important than the people who perform it, right? Don't we want novels that describe the ceremony in elaborate detail to help us understand the people who perform it? and to set up the stakes for when that ceremony is not performed well. I admire elaborate courtly manners and rituals, not because I want to be courtly and refined myself, but because I want to know what it's like for people who make that their life. And even better, to see how people make decisions, human decisions, like who to love and how to express that love within a framework that might seem to pose some restrictions, put some boundaries around what you can do. Pushing against those boundaries. That's what I saw in Proust, and that's what I see in Genji. So, who was Lady Murasaki? Let's start with her world, the period in Japan known as the Heian period. What's our conception of Japan today? Affluent, buzzing, crowded, electronics, video games, Cell phones, superheated economy, corporations. Can you name the Prime Minister of Japan? You probably can. Shinzo Abe. How about five other politicians? Or musicians? Or poets? Or film directors? Maybe there's one. Hayao Miyazaki. That was was the name I could come up with. Professors, economists, writers. Well, there's Haruki Murakami, of course. And we have plenty of other names, historical figures, Kurosawa. We can go back, but it's hard, right? Now, can you name a Japanese car company? Toyota, Honda, Nissan. How about other companies? Canon, Mitsubishi, Sony. I'm not saying this is right or good or anything like that. I'm not saying this is how things should be. And you yourself probably thought of some incredible Japanese artists that I've overlooked. Maybe so. But look, the point here is that we have this view of Japan now that we have to completely set aside, those of us in the West. All this recent history, that's not the Japan of the Heian period. Japan of the Heian period was essentially an an island nation dominated by its much larger neighbor, China which was probably the most advanced civilization in the world at that time. Culturally, politically, the influence on Japan came from China and Korea. For hundreds of years, Japan had what one historian termed feudal anarchy, 
For almost 900 years, says J.M. Roberts, it's hard to find a political thread in Japan. The social continuity is much more obvious. What was that social continuity? Family. The traditional religion, the rituals and worship of Shinto, and the fusion of this traditional religion with the precepts of Buddhism, which arrived in Japan in the 6th century A.D. and was conjoined. This is getting us toward the world of the Heians and the world of Lady Murasaki. The emperor was the focus, but there were several influential families at that time, and one of them, the Fujiwara, emerged as the leading family. To gain power, the Fujiwara married within the imperial household, and the mothers who were raising the children could exercise influence on the members of the imperial family, until eventually the Fujiwara was influencing the emperor and the imperial household until the clan itself had eclipsed the power of the emperor. And then to maintain power, members of the extended Fujiwara clan married one another. In the end, by the time of the Heian period, we have a Fujiwara family making decisions in the emperor's name. Lady Murasaki was in a branch of the Fujiwara family. She lived in this world, the world of the court, where women were behind screens. It wasn't the world of the Japanese peasant at the time at all. The peasant wore hemp and cotton, and a great court lady wore a silk garment with twelve concentric sleeves. There's a, an intellectual or an artistic or a cultural divide as well. The peasant lived in a world where the prevailing values, as reflected in life or art, were simplicity, discipline, good taste, and love of nature. Court life, Lady Murasaki's world, was beautiful, refined, and subtle. Critics might say it's also brittle, insubstantial, and frivolous. But as Murasaki shows us, it's also psychologically rich, complex. Now, Everyone who writes about Lady Murasaki will eventually land on this story because it's so wonderful. The story of how this woman came to write this masterpiece of a novel in a world where girls and women were not believed to be intelligent enough to understand the Chinese classics. just considered the height of art in the Heian period. As she tells us herself, she wrote a diary that survived in fragments. And in it, she describes this part of her education as a little girl. She was from a literate family. Her great-grandfather had been politically influential, close to the emperor, close to the seat of power. But by the time she was born, her family's branch had fallen into disfavor. When she was a girl, they were more at the level of provincial governor. Still refined, still following the, the rules of manners and court life, but away from the central power in Kyoto. Her family was well-known, both for its history of influence that it had once had, and the poets in her family. She was descended from poets. Her father was a scholar of Chinese classical poetry and a poet himself. In this era, husbands and wives had separate households that they kept. Girls tended to live with their mother and boys with their father. Murasaki, Lady Murasaki, when she was a girl, was different. Her mother had died in childbirth. 
So she was raised in her father's household. She probably learned some of what was considered the lesser subjects of the day, the less intellectual subjects, calligraphy, Japanese, Japanese poetry, but Chinese classics. That was considered the premier subject, the highest and most difficult. So that wasn't available to women. They were viewed as not being capable of understanding it. But she listened as it was taught to her brothers, listened behind the screen, so to speak. What a metaphor that is for the rest of her life and for the role of women in her great novel that she would come to write. Sitting behind a screen, but listening and engaged with an intelligence that can be applied to the subject matter. And as she was listening to these lessons, she learned Chinese classics, learned with a greater aptitude and acumen than her brothers. Her father lamented this. Just my luck, he said. What a pity she's not a boy. Yes, what a pity. Or, what a pity that girls weren't included. Listen to Murasaki describe this. Quote, When my brother was a young boy learning the Chinese classics, I was in the habit of listening to him, and I became unusually proficient at understanding those passages that he found too difficult to understand and memorize. End quote. To understand. Memorization is one thing. A parlor trick, sort of. You can have a knack for memorization. But to be unusually proficient, as she tells us, at, at understanding. What confidence that would give you that you could see things that others couldn't, that you could dig into the motivations of others or the challenges that they faced, to know that you're a half-step or a full-step or several steps ahead of your peers at understanding. I think we can see our novelist in training in that phrase. You can also see her personality, her boldness, She cuts a figure. She steps on toes. She's her own woman. She's aware that others saw her as, quote, pretentious, awkward, difficult to approach, prickly, too fond of her tales, haughty, prone to versifying, disdainful, cantankerous, and scornful. End quote. (laughs) And yet, she lives within a world. She's not bursting out of it. She's within it. Thinking thoughts developing ideas, observing, commenting, and inventing. Genji starts out as an idealized figure, a prince. He's called the Shining One, and he's described in glowing terms. It's been speculated that he began as a description of the ideal prince, the one that women like Lady Murasaki and her female friends would be waiting for. This was a world where Women were defined by the men who showed their favor on one woman or another. Marriages were alliances. Women were pawns in the game of consolidating power. Women were kept behind screens and curtains. The verb to see was like an act of possession. It was synonymous with sexual relations. And the women 
didn't have a lot of control over their fate. Will so-and-so visit? Will he visit again? Those were the questions. So while you're waiting and wondering and gossiping, why not describe what kind of man you'd want to visit? That's some, how some people view the, the genesis for, the, ta- for uh, the character of Genji. Now, I said women don't have a lot of control in this world, and that's true, but Lady Murasaki seems to have broken free from these restrictions, at least a, a little bit. I don't have time to recount all of the travels she made and the ups and downs she had or the political developments of her and her family, much of which is speculative anyway, pieced together from the fragmentary information we have. We know she lived in her father's household until later than usual, probably in her early 30s, and she eventually was married to a nobleman in a marriage that some say was unhappy. We do know that she was becoming famous due to her writing, and she went to Kyoto and was close to the empress, and it appears that she was brought in by the empress to educate her daughter. A tutor. There's a fine tradition of that. A sub, it's a substrand of literary history. Thomas Hobbes was a private tutor for an aristocrat, which freed him up to write his works of philosophy. And of course, Aristotle tutored Alexander the Great. Lady Murasaki joins them. Writers who began as tutors. Tutoring the daughter of the emperor gave Lady Murasaki a very close-up view of the court and all the manners and rituals and, and people that that entailed. So she wrote her story of the lives and loves of the ideal prince. And eventually the ideal prince became not so ideal. And the prince dies And the story becomes one about the lives and loves of the prince's two descendants. The years went by and Lady Murasaki kept churning out more and more pages, more and more stories of what happened to these people. Things evolve over time. The book was written from about 1001 AD to 1013. Some of the later chapters are different enough that scholars have wondered whether Murasaki actually wrote them. And the book ends in mid-sentence. On purpose? Some say yes. That was by design. That was Murasaki's plan. I wonder. I wonder if Murasaki wasn't just writing because that's what she did. There was always more life to describe and more scenarios to envision, more psychology to explore. Proust had a hard time finishing, too, his manuscript. Famously had long chains of paper attached to it as he reviewed the manuscript and added yet another sentence, yet another sentence, more layers, more layers going deeper and deeper into the psychology of the characters. Nothing is simple. It's not Gilgamesh with a couple of stark qualities and action that expresses those qualities and eventually changes in a big, bold way. It's complex. That's why this is called a novel. There were stories before, works of prose, even long works of fictional prose, but the reason why Genji is called the first novel is because it's not only a 
long work of fiction written in prose, but because it has a complexity. It has a depth of psychology. We see Genji's thoughts. We see what motivates him. We see this in many other characters as well. What kinds of values do we see? What themes? There are, of course, the way people act within society, how well they perform certain ceremonies, how well they uphold expectations and manners of the day. One might expect, given the complicated nature of rising through the court, that this might be the story of a young man who makes his way through the layers of success, getting closer and closer to the top, perhaps even becoming emperor. No, that's not Murasaki's focus. Right from the start, her focus is on something deeper within the character. Not worldly success, but how one survives the disappointments of the world. How one deals with one's fate. The substitutions and compensations that one makes. Is it a stretch to say that these are the concerns that a woman would know? At this time, a man of the day might have written the first book I described. The successful rise to power, the buttons you push, the pulling of all the right political levers. But what does a woman have before her? What was available to Murasaki in her world? Waiting around for her husband to do something? Or manipulating the world through him, maybe? But she found another subject within herself and her fellow women, the people she spent time with. Weren't they also living the life that I just described? How one compensates for disappointment. How one deals with attraction to another. especially when that doesn't or cannot come to fruition. How the individual seeks a substitute for what is forbidden or unavailable to the individual. Earlier I called Genji a prince, but actually he's a former prince, right from the first chapter. We're told this is not someone who can aspire to be an emperor. And so we're already suffused with longing, with the past, with nostalgia. We're maybe trying to understand a world of change. Early in the book, Genji and his friends debate the ideal woman, and they try to find perfect love. Eventually, he comes to realize that this love doesn't exist. It's not clear whether Murasaki had this in mind when she began. She may have. Or she may have started for the purpose of amusing herself and her readers, her fellow ladies-in-waiting, As an aside, and just so there's no confusion from the earlier story about Murasaki's father educating his children, the tale of Genji was written in Japanese, which women could read. That's who Murasaki was writing for, being passed around the people in court. So these women might have enjoyed reading about the ideal prince and his view of them, and all the qualities that men appreciated or avoided in women. And maybe that was important to Murasaki as well. But as the years go by, and the novel, and perhaps the novel's author, mature, we move to greater insight. The world is not perfect, and love is not perfect. There's no sense chasing an ideal, or at least one should do so with eyes wide open. Remember our episode on Romeo and Juliet? How it should be viewed through the prism of young love, not just love. There's something like that at work here as well. 
nor is Genji an ideal figure. Some readers will be torn in two by him, and some might be repelled altogether. He's gregarious and charismatic and inherently kind and noble, but he's also impetuous and lecherous and hypocritical about his lechery. He hurts people he loves. He tries to replace women, the hole in him that comes from abandoning women. He tries to fill that hole with more women. Eventually, he becomes almost a pathetic figure. As the losses pile up, losses that cannot ultimately be replaced, he has no inner peace. Youthful misdeeds come back to haunt him. Lust and the lure of the forbidden that drive him to make mistakes. His affairs, especially ones he has with his stepmother, which is a dangerous liaison given how close it is to the incest taboo. And it's complicated by her pregnancy and an illicit child. Political troubles like these lead to his exile. There's a strand of Buddhist thought in all this as the wheel of life turns and patterns are repeated again and again. Genji seeks to compensate for loss by finding new loves. Loss, substitution, loss, substitution, over and over. Could it be that he seeks new women to compensate for the loss of his own mother, who died at a young age? Or that he interferes with the imperial succession, which he does through? yet another affair, that he does this to compensate for his own fall from grace and his inability to ever become emperor himself. Critics argue these questions. I pass them along, not to take a position, but to give you a sense of the richness in Murasaki's work. And let's give you a taste of how it sounds. Here's a comic figure, Tayu, who is not a member of the court. He's more of a provincial official. Here's how he's described. By Lady Murasaki. Quote, it would indeed have astonished Taiyu to know anyone in his end considered him in such a light as this. He had always regarded his attentions to women as favors bestowed. He flattered himself, moreover, that he knew as well as any man how to conduct a gallant correspondence, and his letters began to arrive thick and fast. They were written in a clean, bold hand on thick Chinese paper, heavily scented. It was evident indeed that he regarded himself as a more than adequate calligrapher. His style of composition was not an agreeable one, being very torturous and affected. Soon he made up his mind that the time had come for him to call in person, and he arranged with the brothers to meet him at their mother's house. Tayu was a man about thirty, tall and solidly built, he was far from ill-looking, but he had the power, which he frequently exercised, of assuming the most repulsive, ferocious expression. This, however, was reserved for his followers and opponents. When in good temper and engaged upon errands of love, he adopted an entirely different voice and manner. You would have thought indeed that some little bird was chirruping, so dexterously did he reduce his rough bass to a small silvery fluting. As a lover, I ought to come after dark, ought I not? Isn't that what courting means, coming at night? So, I was always told, what extraordinary weather for a spring evening. In autumn, of course, one expects it. 
end quote. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. And here's an example of Genji and his sensibility. Listen for how he talks himself into choosing the pleasure of the moment rather than what he knows is right. This is after one of his lovers, a woman named Nio-san, has confessed her infidelity to Genji. She's planning to enter a convent. One side note, there's a reference to Murasaki in this, but it's not the author. It's a character's name in the novel. Quote, Did she really mean what she had said? He was appalled at the idea of her carrying out such a resolution. And yet, he knew well enough all the difficulties that would arise if they attempted to go on loving as though nothing had happened. He knew his own feelings, knew that no effort of his own could alter them, and that try as he might to forget the past, Nyosan would suffer at every instant from the knowledge that in his heart of hearts he had not forgiven her. And other people, her father, for example, would inevitably notice the change in their relations. If, on the other hand, she insisted upon taking her vows, it would be far better that she should do it at once, making her ill health the excuse. Otherwise, the step would certainly be attributed to his unkindness. But then his eyes fell upon her long, lovely hair that should by rights have delighted his eyes for so many years longer. And the idea of its being shorn from her by the cleric's knife was intolerable to him. Come, come, he said. You must pluck up your courage. Things are not so bad as that. Look at Murasaki. She was much worse than you have been, but now she is quite out of danger. He persuaded her to drink a little soup. She was certainly very thin and pale. Indeed, in every way, alarmingly fragile. But nevertheless, as he looked at her lying motionless on the bed, he thought her singularly beautiful. And at that moment, all thought of her unfaithfulness vanished from his mind. To such beauty, all things could be forgiven. End quote. Here's a few more quotes from the tale of Genji. Real things in the darkness seem no realer than dreams. There's another one, famous one. There are as many sorts of women as there are women. And finally, One last passage, this one's a little longer, to give you a sense of the narrator's voice and sensibility. 
This is a friend who is telling us like it is, a friend who understands the world in a way that we recognize, but whose understanding is perhaps a step or two ahead of ours, just as the girl's understanding of Chinese poetry was a step or two ahead of her brother's. Quote, The bond between husband and wife is a strong one. Suppose the man had hunted her out and brought her back. The memory of her acts would still be there, and inevitably, sooner or later, it would be cause for rancor. When there are crises, incidents, a woman should try to overlook them, for better or for worse, and make the bond into something durable. The wounds will remain, with the woman and with the man, when there are crises, such as I have described, It is very foolish for a woman to let a little dalliance upset her so much that she shows her resentment openly. He has his adventures, but if he has fond memories of their early days together, his and hers, she may be sure that she matters. A commotion means the end of everything. She should be quiet and generous, and when something comes up that quite properly arouses her resentment, she should make it known by delicate hints. The man will feel guilty, and with tactful guidance, he will mend his ways. Too much lenience can make a woman seem charmingly docile and trusting, but it can also make her seem somewhat wanting in substance. We have had instances enough of boats abandoned to the winds and waves. It may be difficult when someone you are especially fond of, someone beautiful and charming, has been guilty of an indiscretion, but magnanimity produces wonders. It may not always work, but generosity and reasonableness and patience do, on the whole, seem best. That's good stuff. Quite simply, this is an astonishing piece of literature. There are something like 400 characters here and hundreds of pages on the sexual and political adventures of Genji and his descendants. It's full of period detail and can tell us a lot about how things worked in the Heian period, what the details of it were, the flower feasts and plum blossom festivals, the perfumes and silks and poetry. And I spoke about rituals earlier in a kind of dismissive way, but I like rituals. I'm fascinated by them. I don't go to church much, but I like church services. I like activities that have complicated parts that people devote themselves to. Skiing is not my thing, but I love the, the, the gear, going to the ski resort, the whole process of it. And camping is like that. I spent years immersed in fly fishing. I love the routines and rituals of that, all of that. I love talking to people who know things and do things, who are devoted to a craft or to getting something just right, who have found the way. It's comforting to me and fascinating and therapeutic and inspiring. But as I mentioned before, ritual is empty without the humans within it who are practicing it. I want to know what this means to the people who do. And that's where the tale of Genji thrives. We see the passions and heartbreaks, the lust and longing, the action and reflection. We see the reality of the world, of this world, of of Murasaki's world. It's a world you can see and enjoy, whether you're closer to the 
being the Russian aristocrat polished in Paris, or whether you're a kid whose father hung his underwear on a nail on the door. That's the power of literature at its finest, and the tale of Genji is a shining example of it. That was such a good ending that I wanted to stop there. But I left out one other component that I think I promised. Her influence. And really, the question of why she wrote this novel in the first place. What compelled her? Well, I'm going to give you an answer to this. Maybe not as direct an answer as you would like, but it's something that interests me. The real answer, of course, is we don't actually know. All we can do is speculate about either of those questions. But I found something interesting that shed some light, perhaps, on these areas. The Merriam-Webster Encyclopedia of Literature, which I have, is a little outdated. It's really focused on Western literature. It's more Western-dominated than we would expect today. But in some ways, that can be useful. For this question in particular, the question of influence. Genji has been enormously important and influential in Japan. It's still read, although the language has changed enough that now it's usually read in translation to update the prose for the modern reader. And there are paintings and cartoons and graphic novels and television shows. It's, it's had a widespread and important impact on Japanese culture. What about the history of the novel? When Genji appeared in translation in the early 20th century, Western novelists and writers saw it for its merits, and no doubt there was some influence then. Jorge Luis Borges, one of our favorites, as you know, had this to say, quote, The tale of Genji, as translated by Arthur Whaley, is written with an almost miraculous naturalness, and what interests us is not the exoticism, a horrible word, but rather the human passions of the novel. Such interest is just. Murasaki's work is what one would quite precisely call a psychological novel. I dare to recommend this book to those who read me. End quote. That's in the 20th century, but what about earlier? Merriam-Webster gives the award of first novel to Cervantes and Don Quixote. As I said, that's a, a Western-centric encyclopedia. It's striking to me that Don Quixote came 600 years after the tale of Genji. Suggests that Genji perhaps did not influence Western literature directly, as it seems not to have inspired a similar effort in anyone in Europe for 600 years. As far as I know, we don't have a reason to believe that Cervantes himself imitated or even knew about the tale of Genji when he wrote his novel. So then, seems that the Western novel, or we should probably say the Western psychological or historical novel, may have arisen independently from the tale of Genji. But let's keep to the Cervantes-Murasaki parallel for a second. If this is true, if these traditions arose independently, it does make us ask, why? What compelled these two individuals to write novels like this? Everyone who came after, you could say, well, they admired the tale of Genji or Don Quixote, and they were inspired to adapt 
that model to their own particular purposes. They saw what those books and the the progeny of those books could do. They saw the psychological richness that a lengthy work of prose fiction could convey. But Murasaki and Cervantes, the two originators, they were pushing things forward without precedent. Now, listen to the first lines of each book. We'll start with Cervantes. In a certain village in La Mancha, which I do not wish to name, there lived not long ago a gentleman, one of those who have always had a lance in the rack, an ancient shield, a lean nag, and a greyhound for racing. Here's the first sentence of the tale of Genji by Lady Murasaki. In a certain reign, whose can it have been? Someone of no very great rank, among all his majesty's consorts and intimates, enjoyed exceptional favor. Hear how similar that is? Now, you might say that maybe Cervantes had gotten wind of Murasaki and was following her example, and maybe this sentence is a, is a bit of evidence in support of that hypothesis. I'm not aware of any actual evidence of that, and, and maybe someone has definitively proven or disproven that theory. But let's look at it another way. What the, each of these authors is telling us is that this is the story of a person. I'm telling you the story of a person's life. That's the first similarity. But listen to the other part of this. Cervantes says it occurs in a certain village, quote, which I do not wish to name, end quote. Murasaki says her tale takes place, quote, in a certain reign. Whose can it have been? End quote. In other words, this is fiction. Murasaki, in particular, had reasons for not tying things too closely to anyone who might have been offended, especially someone who was then currently holding power. But I think we see something here, some seedlings of genius, the thought process behind the genius runs something like this. I can tell you the story of a life. You might think it's a straight history, a biography. But listen, if I make things up, I can tell you something broader about humanity. What takes novels away from biographical sketches, what animates them, gives them more power. Philip Roth used to get angry when interviewers would ask him about his inspiration for things and would try to tie everything back to real people in his life and real events that had actually happened. Don't you see, he would say, that the difference between me and you is that I can make things up. What he was providing was almost like a definition of what a novelist does. Not, he didn't say that I can make things up in the sense of I do make things up. He specifically says the difference is that he can make things up. Well, we can all make things up to some limited extent, but Roth and other novelists and the even more extreme examples of world creators like Cervantes and Proust and Lady Murasaki, they're not like those of us telling little bedtime stories to our children or making up a character or two for a school play. 
genius says, like the ones we've looked at here, Shakespeare being a supreme example, but also Homer and Chekhov and Joyce, and yes, Murasaki, can make things up to a very high degree of competence and with a very big payoff, a psychological richness and complexity that teaches us all what it means to be human. It's where life becomes literature and literature becomes life. There we go. A double ending this time. Well, this ending, there's no tricks. This is really going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, except for selling some fish. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. It's free. And it really helps keep us going. Our sponsors pay attention to things like subscribers, listeners. And speaking of sponsors, you can check out one of our sponsors at audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. You sign up for a free 30-day trial using that link, and they help support this free show. Lots of free things for you, and your old friend Jack can stop wearing this sweatshirt he's had since 1989. What can I say? It's comfy. And the stains are like old friends. (laughs) Because really all my best friends are stains. Stains on humanity. Just kidding, friends. You're not stains. You're you're clean, unstained people. (laughs) What? Where was I going with this? Who knows? In any case, we have some great shows coming up that you won't want to miss. So please do subscribe on iTunes or your podcast app or however you find your podcasts. Spread the word. If you need more help finding us, check out our Facebook page or historyofliterature.com. As always, you can send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or leave us a comment on one of the websites or the Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. We're getting some great ideas for shows from our listeners. As always, I'm taking requests, and I hope you are too. What? I hope you are too? Why did I say that? I'm taking requests, and I hope you are too. That makes no sense. You ever do that? Someone says something like, have a safe flight, and you say, thanks, you too, even though they're not flying anywhere. That's what I just did there. I'm taking requests for shows I would like to to put out, and I hope that you will like them when I do. That's what I meant. Sorry, people. I'll try to be more careful and not make that kind of mistake again. It's really unforgivable to switch things around like that. From now on, I'll do better, and I hope you will as well. I'm Jack Wilson, and I hope you are too. You're welcome for listening, and you'll see us next time. Thank you.